encounter between Islam and Christendom has been one of the most important narrative trends in Western history. And it remains so today. And while thousands of pages have been written from both sides on this subject, one of the first writers to attempt to explain Islam to a Christian audience was a leading theologian in the Byzantine Orthodox Church who was writing from the heart of the Islamic Caliphate. He minced no words, calling the Prophet Muhammad a heretic and Islam a heresy. His words would not only influence his own generation, but still remain quoted today as an authority on the subject. So today we're going to look at one of the first writers in this encounter between Islam and Christianity, and that is the monk St. John of Damascus. So please stay with us. So just to note here before we begin, much of what John of Damascus is going to say about Islam is necessarily offensive to Muslims. He means it to be that way. Uh, he considers it a heresy. So uh, some of this may be offensive to some listeners. Uh, we don't mean it to be that way. As you know, we don't insult anyone's religion on this show. Uh, so please bear that in mind. Okay, welcome back to the Golden Age of Islam, and today we're doing the first episode on a subject that is of great interest and a subject of which many books are written even today, and that is the encounter between Islam and the West, an encounter which seems to be dominated even in our day by misunderstanding. So we're going to go back to one of the first writers on this subject, and he may or may not be the first Christian theologian to discuss Islam, but he's certainly the, the oldest one that we still have the records of. And this is St. John of Damascus. He's an Orthodox monk, and he was born about 30 years after the death of the Prophet Muhammad. But even though he wrote so long ago, he still commands a lot of respect today. And in fact, in preparing for this episode, I consulted a number of Orthodox Christ Eastern Orthodox Christian uh, websites and books, and most of them still praise St. John as a guy who really knew what he was talking about. Um, one of these Orthodox websites uh, praises John for his, quote, deep understanding of the Quran, unquote. So as we listen to his ideas today, some of them may seem somewhat strange and uh, misguided, particularly if you've been following this podcast for the last 60 or so episodes. Some of his claims uh, may not seem to jive with what we've been talking about, but it is important that we not dismiss him as just being an outdated guy from you know, over a thousand years ago. Uh, because uh, writers today, people today, think that this guy really nailed it. He really knew what he was talking about. So, if nothing else, uh, this is going to give us some idea of how the Christian church at the time 
viewed Islam. And this is, of course, one of the first encounters, but it's going to uh, become a much bigger issue and heat up with crusades and wars and so forth, as we've talked about. So, let's talk about this man, St. John of Damascus. As his name implies, uh, John, or Johanna, uh, was from Damascus in Syria, and he was probably born about 675 A.D. and lived into the 740s. So if you're familiar with our timeline from previous episodes, uh, this will ring a bell to you because you know that Damascus at that time was the capital of the Umayyad Caliphate, the Muslim state, and you mean the largest empire in the world at that time. So we're not just talking about some obscure traveler who bumped into Muslims at some point and made note of them, as there were a number of those people. I mean, we're, we're talking about a guy who lived in the capital of uh, the Muslim state, right? So this, you know, might be something like someone living in, in Riyadh today or Cairo writing about Islam. Okay, now, that may sound a little bit odd that this... Um, very important orthodox theologian is writing from Damascus. But that actually tells us quite a bit. So, of course, Syria had been part of the Byzantine Empire. It was, in fact, a very important uh, province of the Byzantine Empire, uh, which, of course, is the uh, seat of the Eastern Orthodox Church, with uh, Constantinople being the, the center there. And, of course, um, the Catholic Church is centered in Rome, and it was at the time, but of course in terms of political military power, uh, the Byzantine Empire is, is much, much stronger in I mean, the Orthodox Church, although it's technically, they technically claim to be subordinate to the, the Church in Rome. I mean, it is by far more powerful at the time. So, uh, by the time of John's birth, uh, this area had been conquered by the Umayyads, and as we know, Muawiyah made Damascus their capital, the first really great uh, Islamic capital, and this is where John's family was from, and they were a prominent family in the government and in the church. So it's believed that John's father was an official for the Byzantine government, and when the Umayyads took over, he went to work for them. Now, if you remember when we talked about the early caliphate, uh, one of the reasons they were successful and one of the reasons they were able to run such a large empire is they kept the existing government and administrative structures in place, right? I mean, other than the leaders, you know, if you were a king or a prince, you were out of luck. Uh, you know, if you were a clerk or a minister, uh, you know, your job continued, and in many cases, it got better. And so John's father is one of these guys. Uh, he was a, openly a Christian, Orthodox Christian, but so was most of the people at the time. Uh, remember, we also mentioned that, you know, the majority were still Christian, and that conversion to Islam was a slow process uh, and took centuries, and so um, the fact that this is an Orthodox Christian guy working for the Umayyad Caliphate, I mean, this is nothing unusual for that time. Now, one of the things that is changing, though, is um, the Umayyad Caliph, al-Walid, 
at the time was beginning to Islamicize and Arabicize uh, the government and society, uh, putting more emphasis on that. And this is one of the reasons that Arabic becomes um, really the universal language of the caliphate. So this is said that this is one of the reasons why John eventually leaves Damascus is because it was becoming uh, less welcoming for a devout Christian like himself. Okay, now there is some speculation that even John himself worked for the caliph before he became a monk, but we really don't have the evidence of this. Uh, but we know his father did. Now, like his father, uh, John had an extensive education, and it's you know pretty much the pattern we've seen of you know every great scholar of the Islamic Middle Ages. Okay, he studied everything from music to mathematics and, of course, an emphasis on theology. He was particularly famous for his mathematic skills, such that people of the time said he was as good as Euclid and Archimedes. Okay, I don't know about that. We don't really hear about him in the study of mathematics, but the point is he was very well educated, uh, particularly educated in logic, and this really fits the pattern of what the intellectual of the day is going to be like. And as we've said many, many times before, you know, many of those great scholars, even in the centuries that are going to follow, are Christians and Jews. So nothing unusual here. Now, he became a major religious authority in the uh, Orthodox Church and remains one today, not just uh, writing about Islam. That is one of the things he wrote about, but he really is an authority on all the important debates in Christianity at the time. Uh, the thing he's best known for in Orthodox theology is his defense of icons. Uh, now, of course, as you know, icons or these pictures of saints that are adorned churches and houses are one of the biggest controversies um, at the time in Orthodox theology. Um, and I mean, there's something that would be flat out rejected by Martin Luther and Protestantism. But even at the time, um, there was a big move within Orthodox Christianity to get rid of them. And this came from people who were known as, quote, iconoclasts people who are against icons, and this is where we get the word today, someone who is iconoclastic in anything, you know, wants to sort of smash, um, you know, the great idols, the great forerunners in any field, okay? Uh, and John was one of the, and even today, one of the big authorities on why we should have icons and why it's okay to have them in churches. Uh, and obviously he won out. But he, he wrote extensively on uh, all areas of theology, and this is one reason he's called like the last of the early church fathers, because uh, what he did was not so much innovative writing, but systemizing and collecting everything that was written before. Uh, and, you know, we have talked about what a, what a mess, what a melting pot early Christianity was with so many competing ideas and theologies, uh, and the ones that lost out would become heresies. John was really the guy who took everything that was accepted and put it together into a systemic... Um, theology which would become official orthodox theology. And so he's really the transition from that early period to what becomes official. Uh, in fact, his most famous work is called The Fountain of Wisdom, 
and there's several parts of it, but the most famous part of that book is the middle, which is called the, um, the Book of Heresies. And this is where he lists and refutes 102 heresies. Okay, so there's not a small amount here. Uh, and most of these are, these are the, the ideas that didn't win out in the first several centuries, particularly the first three centuries of Christianity, most of them dealing with the nature of Christ. Was he just a human? Was he a human who became divine after he died? Was he just a, a god? Was he a god who took on the form of humanity and so forth? Uh, anyway, he's got 102 of these, and he refutes them all. Okay, the last one he lists is Islam. And so this is where the Christian-Muslim encounter uh, comes in. Now, it's interesting here why he's listing this as a heresy because almost well all of the other heresies he lists besides Islam come from um, people who are identifying themselves as Christian churches and saying you know we're the correct Christian church and this is what we believe uh, and so Islam is not doing that uh, and this is one of the main points even today you know, why did he consider Islam to be a heresy within the church? Okay, well, there's, um, there, there's a lot of speculation on this, and of course we can't know for sure, but it does reflect the fact that this would be the dominant view of Islam in the early centuries. It would be viewed as a heresy. Uh, during the Crusades, it would be viewed primarily as a heresy. The idea of Islam as a separate religion uh, really comes up later. And it reflects the fact that the Prophet Muhammad did not come saying, hey, I bring you a new religion. He appealed to existing monotheists at the time as the last in their line of prophets. Uh, so we can see how this division of separate religions uh, really comes on uh, later. Now, an interesting thing here is why would a leading Orthodox theologian be located in the Umayyad territory? John would spend his early years in Damascus, and then after he left government work, retired to a monastery to write uh, outside of Jerusalem. Well, it shows us that communication between Umayyad Syria and Orthodox, what is now Turkey, was very extensive. Okay, um, And, you know, there was a majority of Christians still in this area, in what is now Syria. Christian pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem, right? And it shows that the conversion of captured territories was still very gradual. So it was not a strange thing to have one of the major figures in Christianity working in Syria. There's also another very important issue here, which I, I don't want to get too tangled in because it's so much in the headlines even as I am speaking, but this speaks about the degree of tolerance and, you know, mutual acceptance and debate that existed on this, at this time. Um, as, as we'll see throughout the, the Golden Age period of Islam, uh, we have Christian writers and 
Muslims debating each other, debating each other's theology, and this was a normal thing. So here's a guy, he's, he's not, you know, underground, he's not hiding, these are not forbidden writings that he's smuggling out, he is openly writing what he thinks, he's writing his criticisms of Islam, um, and, you know, people are writing back to them, and this sort of debate would go on, and it was seen as this was a way uh, to try and change ideas and opinions. And when when we look at some of the terrible things, some of the ugly things going on in, in the world today in terms of religious intolerance, it's, you know, really shocking to see that there is far more tolerance going on in, in the center of the caliphate in the 700s um, than what we have in many countries uh, today. And so that's just... I mean, it's it's unfortunate, but if we look at some of the things that uh, John is going to write, in which he's going to publish and be allowed to do so, I mean, they're really more uh, offensive to the principles of Islam than um, what people are being killed for today. Okay, now that's a subject we could go into in great depth, but it is something to look at the way... um, the attitude was during this high period. This is this is really the golden age, and there is this sort of mutual respect and tolerance, and you know, honest debate instead of just shutting people down. Okay, so anyway, let's get to the the writings of Saint John. Now, he seems to have been familiar with Arabic, which would make sense for someone in his position. And this is one of the big reasons that um, Christians consider him to be an expert. I mean, even today, if you can trot out a few Arabic words, you know, um, people think you're, you're like an expert on this. So you can, you can be on CNN just, you know, absolutely butchering Arabic, and people think, you know, that you're, you're an expert. Uh, now, John does appear to actually know some Arabic, and this is where commentators really uh, seem to give him a lot of credibility. For example, one example that's pointed out is he talks about the Quran being sent down to Muhammad, whereas, you know, most writers say that it was revealed. Now, this is based on the Arabic word anzala, which means to cause something to descend. And so they're saying that, okay, he, he really does understand the words that are being used here and is um, translating them correctly. However, his actual knowledge of the Quran is pretty sketchy, as we're going to see. And so this is one of the dangers. So he will quote specific things. And so people look at that and say, ah, well, he's an expert on the text. But then we look at, okay, he, he quotes these certain passages, but he doesn't seem to be aware of these other ones, which would explain what he's bringing up. So, okay, um, he may have had um, you know, somewhat limited familiarity with the Quran. In fact, uh, one scholar who looks at this notes that everything that John mentions about the Quran comes from the first five surahs. And so uh, there, there's one exception. He, he does quote uh, a verse that comes from Surah 112, uh, but he, he quotes it incorrectly. And so um, this may be the fact that that's all he had access to, or maybe he started reading and that's as far as he went. Okay, so 
we don't really know. Um, my, my point is, as you listen to his criticisms, um, you really do not need a doctorate in Islam to be able to refute them. Uh, in fact, if you've listened to a couple of episodes of this podcast, um, or you've taken History 101, you can probably refute all of the comments that he makes. And so our point here is not to be criticizing John of Damascus, but just to show this was the level of understanding that existed at the time. I mean, he's seen as the expert. Okay, now the way he writes, though, it makes us difficult to figure out um, what, what he's actually read and where he gets his information. And the reason is um, his most of his writing in, in this book, and he has one other book that is also famous on this subject, which is called The Disputation Between a Christian and uh, a Muslim, which is written as a dialogue. But even most of this far more famous book, The, the Heresy of the Ishmaelites, as it's called, is written like a dialogue, and it goes, uh, almost the entire text goes something like, quote, we ask them such and such, quote, and they say, blah. Now, we don't know if he actually went up to people and asked them, or he's summarizing his encounters, or this is just a way of writing, because this is the format that he uses throughout. Um, the we ask them this, they say this. Okay, did he actually ask people, or is that just a way of of phrasing it? And by the way, he writes a lot of other uh, texts like this. He writes um, about the heresy of the Nestorians, about the heresy of the Arians, and they're all written the same way, like a dialogue. We ask the Arians, and the Arians say blah. Okay, there's never any specific person. Like, you know, I asked... Uh, whatever, the imam of this mosque, and he said, okay, blah. All right, now, this is an important technique for writing, and it's certainly, um, we're going to see that, you know, when you read John's book, he just sounds like a wonderful debater, and the Muslims pretty much are not able to answer any of the questions he asked, or they're not able to give a, a decent answer, right? It's, a, it's basically him, you know, just absolutely stymieing these people. So um, either he talked to people who didn't know very much, or he just has a selective memory. Uh, however, I mean, this is pretty typical, right? You listen to anybody's version of, a, of an argument or a debate, and it sounds pretty one-sided. Uh, for example, uh, I can remember when I first went to Saudi Arabia, I had a meeting with a two-star general there, and it's very typical. He sat me down, and he he gave me a, a nice copy of the Quran and several Hadith collections and so forth. And, of course, he gave me like a, about a one-hour sermon uh, about Islam. And part of this was he, he said that he had a discussion with a Catholic priest. And he said, well, you know, if, you're, if your God, Jesus, is a man, uh, does he have to go to the bathroom and does he have to sleep? And the, the Catholic priest said yes, and he, in general asked them, uh, well, how do you pray to Jesus when he's asleep or when he's in the bathroom? And the Catholic priest told them, well, you can't do that. Uh, we're not allowed to pray when Jesus is in the bathroom. Okay, now, 
I don't think any Catholic priest ever said anything that ridiculous, but this is what the guy chooses to remember, and he's telling this story. He probably actually did have some sort of discussion with a Catholic priest. I'm sure that's not what the guy said. This is what he chose to remember, and so we just sat there and and laughed with him. Oh, yes, that's very silly. Uh, Probably a similar thing when we listen to some of the lame answers that the the so-called Muslims in this text are going to give to John's really tough questions. Okay, so, you know, just listening to them, you will be able to answer most of them. Okay, so let's look at the specifics. Uh, First off, John starts off pretty harsh here. He is not mincing words. And so uh, he he spends actually a a fair amount of time talking about the correct terminology for these people, and he calls them the Ishmaelites. And he says they are a forerunner of the Antichrist. Okay, so uh, pretty hefty. Uh, And then he goes on to talk more about the different names for these people. Um, The interesting thing is he never calls them Muslims and he never calls them Arabs, both of which would be, you know, very common words for someone who's living in uh, Damascus. He, he doesn't use that. He talks about Saracens and where the word Saracen comes from, and he talks about Ishmaelites. Now, of course, uh, Ishmael is the son of Abraham. In the Quran, uh, Ishmael is, is said to be the one that Abraham was about to uh, sacrifice, and it is through him that the blessing in monotheism continues. So that may sound like a nice thing, but actually, uh, the way he means it, of course, he's quoting from the the Old Testament, uh, to which from Christians and for Jews, uh, Ishmael is the son who is rejected, the one who is cast off, and Isaac is the one who is blessed. Uh, and it's said that Ishmael becomes in the, in the in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it said that Ishmael uh, becomes a wild man. Okay, so when, when he's calling them that, he, he thinks it's a negative thing. Okay, so he, he's using some negative terms for them. Okay, and then he says uh, what, what's probably his most famous quote, uh, and he's talking about, he says, quote, a false prophet named Muhammad who appeared in their midst. And it's worth quoting, he says, This man, after having chanced upon the Old and New Testaments, and likewise it seems, having conversed with an Arian monk, devised his own heresy. Then, having insinuating himself into the good graces of the people, by a show of seeming piety, he gave out that a certain book had been sent down to him from heaven. He had set down some ridiculous compositions in this book of his, and he gave it to them as an object of veneration. End quote. Okay, so here he's laying out his position. It's um, very harsh. He's calling um, 
the prophet Muhammad uh, a heretic, and he's saying he devised this thing. And he's also where he says he insinuated themselves into the good graces. Um, he, he's making this a deliberate thing. So he's not saying that he believes the the prophet, you know, had some sort of vision and he was just wrong. Uh, you know, he, he's making it sound like he's a fraud and he actually created this thing himself, which is going to fit with what he says later on. Okay, and that, of course, um, is... I mean, extremely offensive uh, to to any Muslim. So he's really setting himself up. He's not saying that okay, here's here's a you know a good Christian and he just deviated on some things. So he's making a you know pretty harsh claim here. Now we we talked in the previous episode about what he's referring to here. He says he chanced upon the Old and New Testaments and conversed with an Arian monk. Okay, uh, this is referring to, I mean, the story is actually uh, accepted uh, by Muslims and Christians that the prophet met a monk named Bahira, and this is the first person who said that uh, Muhammad is a prophet and he was going to be a blessing. Um, and so this encounter is, you know, accepted by, you know, pretty much both sides. Uh, however, the Christian uh, interpretation of this, and this is where, I mean, John may be the first one to really put this into writing, is that it's through this monk, whose his, um, his Christian name was George, uh, that this is where Muhammad uh, finds out about the Old and New Testament, and he goes further to say that uh, Bahira was an Aryan monk. Now, this is not something that is known for sure, but... This would fit with what John's agenda is because Arianism is one of the major heresies um, that he condemned and that the Orthodox Church condemned at the time. So he's associating him uh, with this known heresy. Again, we don't know that Bahira actually um, had any relation to Arianism. Now, what this is, and it, it may be a little bit misleading because although it's called Arianism, this has nothing to do with the Aryan uh, people who come from northern India, and of course the Aryans, as this concept is going to be um, like revised by Hitler uh, later on. This actually refers to the, the name of a man named Arius, who was the teacher. Okay, in brief, what Arianism is, this is one of the many, uh, many theologies that developed in the early centuries of Christianity, trying to explain what the nature of Christ was and how that was related to the nature of God. And we know the, the final version that's going to come out and be accepted by most Christian denominations is this idea of a trinity, one God in three persons. Uh, but this was not the only version uh, that was out there by far. I mean, there was every possible interpretation of this, and one of the most popular was that of Arius. And what Arius taught was that Jesus is distinct from God the Father, was created by God the Father, uh, was not eternal, and um, is definitely subordinate to God the Father, and, and therefore um, Jesus is not part of the same being as God. Now, this, of course, would become a heresy, but, I mean, it was 
you know, seen as a valid interpretation of what the Bible said, and, you know, it's just not the one that won out. And so, anyway, this is what uh, John is accusing uh, Muhammad of being influenced with, and you can see why, because this is actually pretty close to what Islam teaches, okay, that Jesus was a man, he was a prophet, uh, he's a very special man, but he's he's a created human being created by God, and he was not eternal with God. Okay, um, again, did Muhammad have any contact with Arianism? Did he ever hear about it? We really don't know. Okay, so this is his general accusations against him. So now John is going to have to get specific, um, and his biggest claims, the first one he makes against the prophet Muhammad is that uh, Muhammad did not have any witness for his revelations, and that earlier prophets did not foretell of him. And he, he makes it sound like, you know, really ridiculous. How is it that, you, you know, all the other prophets had proofs? He points out specifically Moses and Jesus had lots of proofs, right? God appeared in a burning bush, um, when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets and people are worshiping a cow, uh, right? God, God appears, you know, in you know, lightning and and, and such. Uh, Jesus had all these miracles and so forth, and he says um, that there, I mean, there's there's no proof here. Muhammad went off by himself into a cave, so this is you know not the way it is for the other prophets, and supposedly. He claims that the Muslims say that Muhammad got the message while he was asleep, and then John makes these sarcastic comments, well, how do you know it wasn't a dream, and so forth. Now, of course, um, Islam does have answers to these questions, right? Okay, now whether Christians would accept them or not is another question, um, but they, you know, certainly anyone could give a better answer today than than what supposedly they gave John. I mean, first of all, no one no one says that um, Muhammad was asleep and he saw this in a dream. Okay, that's that's his interpretation. Uh, that's what he hears him say. Uh, however, uh, Islam makes a big point of the fact that Muhammad's miracle was linguistic because he was illiterate. And remember, the Arabs place great importance on language and specifically poetry and even believe that uh, poets had mystical powers so the quran is taken as a miracle because it was written and recited orally it was not put down into writing Uh, when you based on what i read you from john it makes it sound like muhammad wrote this as a book and brought a book to people um, which of course he did not do it was not put in into writing during his lifetime. Okay. And there is the very famous challenge in Surat al-Baqarah where God challenges the doubters to produce one surah like the Quran. Okay. Uh, and even today people cite this as the the proof um, this is still given as a challenge, okay? If you doubt that the Quran is divinely inspired, then produce one surah like it. Now, opponents say that this is circular logic. Of course, if you hold the Quran to be the word of God, then any imitation is not going to sound as good, okay? I mean, now you can argue that, and so, you know, 
many non-Muslims do not accept that logic. The point is, there, there is an answer, right? There, there is an answer that is given to this. In John's telling, they're not able to give this answer. They don't have it, okay? And then there are a lot of other um, points about the Quran where you could look at specific verses and just the things that pop up in there um, based on their structure would be very hard to do, you know, unless you were, you know, were able to write it in, in you know, plan the thing out from the beginning. Anyway, the point is, um, Muslims do believe that there is a proof to it. Now, the other point he makes is he asked why the earlier prophets did not foretell Muhammad's coming. We discussed this in a previous episode. Uh, Jesus specifically talks about someone coming after him. Christians say this is the Holy Spirit. Muslims say he meant Muhammad. So obviously John would disagree with them, uh, but he can't really say that they don't have an answer to this question um, because they did. Now, the question is, did John encounter anyone who could make these arguments? Uh, that we don't know, okay? All right, okay. Then after this, he starts to get um, more specific. And now he does seem to have some uh, understanding of the criticisms of Christianity. So he says that two of the claims that Muslims make about Christianity is that Christians are polytheists and they worship the cross. And this, of course, are two of the main issues that, that are brought up, okay? Um, as, as a Muslim would see this, Christians are saying separate prayers to Jesus, to Mary, to specific saints, okay? They have a trinity and so forth. Okay, now the point here is John, as a, a theologian, was very heavily involved in the early um, uh, wranglings to come up with the, the concept of the trinity. So in his mind, um, this is not a valid claim because to, to him, he spent a, a lot of time defending the idea of the Trinity as being true and rejecting things like Arianism. So this claim that Christians are polytheistic, uh, he would reject. Again, he def defended icons, so he would not see that as a form of idolatry. Okay. All right, um, and so this may be uh, one of the reasons why John uh, characterizes Islam as a heresy, because a lot of the critiques that Islam is bringing up about Christianity were brought up by earlier sects uh, that, as, as I said, lost out. So the fact he can make a, a a, a comparison, a similarity between Arianism and Islam. Okay, Arianism is, is clearly an early Christian theology that was rejected. Okay, Islam comes six centuries later, but in their description of Jesus, there's a lot of similarities. So this may be why he's seeing it as a um, as a heresy. Okay. All right. So anyway. What John is going to try and do is basically show that the Muslim concepts about Jesus are contradictory. Uh, so those, those early verses, he sort of attacked Muhammad, uh, but there really isn't a lot to them. I mean, he, he basically just accuses him of being a fraud uh, and then throws out, um, I mean, a few points that he doesn't go much 
into. He spends much more time talking about the way Muslims deal with the concept of Jesus and trying to show that they are contradictory. Okay, so he points to a very famous ayat in uh, Surah An-Nisa, the fourth surah, which talks a lot about um, Jesus and the correct, the correct interpretation of Jesus' nature according to Islam. And um, this this uh, verse will be familiar to a lot of people. It says that Jesus, the son of Mary, was the messenger of God and His Word. Now, this is where he really clues upon this last word, word, um, kalimat, in in Arabic, which means exactly that. Okay, as you probably know, in Christianity, the word of God, with a capital W, which of course we don't have capital letters in Arabic, okay, the word of God is what Jesus is called, and particularly in the Gospel of John. Um, which is really the gospel um, that, that most pushes the divinity of Jesus. Okay, it's the last gospel written. It was written um, decades after the others, and I mean it begins. Right, the beginning of it is the talking about the Word of God. All right, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is very clearly defined here as being Jesus, uh, logos in the Greek, and it's saying that it was with God from the beginning, and the Word became flesh. Okay, so what John is doing is he's taking this very Christian idea, it's not only a Christian idea, it's very specifically from the, the Gospel of John, not found in the others, and say, okay, Jesus is the Word of God, and you have it right here in uh, Surat An-Nisa that right in your Quran it says that Jesus is his word, is the word of God. Aha, you admit it. Okay, now, um, if, you, if you were to read the entire verse in the Quran, it makes it very clear that what, um, what it's talking about when it says the kalima, the word of God, is talking about the virgin, excuse me, the virgin birth of Jesus. Jesus. And it's saying the Word is what God creates in Mary, puts in the Virgin Mary to create um, Jesus. Now, of course, uh, Islam does not deny the virgin birth of Jesus. Okay, so it, it's clear what he's talking about in this case. However, uh, John is interpreting this as saying, wait a minute, you, you're claiming that Jesus is just a man, but here, right, you're repeating the same thing that's in the Gospel of John. Okay, uh, all right, and of course, what he's trying to do is is catch them out, saying, "Aha, you say it's wrong when we do this, bah, but you're doing the same thing." Okay, now he's hitting on, uh, by the way, one of the biggest controversies in Muslim theology of the day. Okay, so if the Trinity was a biggie in Christianity, right, and that is something uh, that they spent centuries battling out, and then ended up, you know excommunicating a whole bunch of people, about a hundred groups as heretics, according to uh, John here. Then on the other side, on the Muslim side, uh, this, this dealing with the Word of God is one of the biggies. Okay, one of the We've talked about this in, in several episodes, but in the early centuries, one of the biggest uh, problems in, in Islam was how to deal with 
the parts of God, because if God is one, then he cannot have parts. And this is seen as a big heresy of Christianity, right, which has, you know, God has a throne, he has hands, he has a back, all uh, right, Moses is only allowed to look at the backside of, of God and so forth. And that's all seen as, you know, very blasphemous. It's denying the oneness, the unity of God. But how do we deal with terms like, quote, God's mercy, God's hand, God's will, God's word, etc.? Right, and, and specifically, uh, we talked about a group called the Mutazilites, who for a while were dominant in Islam, eventually will become uh, uh, declared a heresy themselves. Okay, so this is one of the problems. And so what's happening here, we have one of the biggest controversies in in Islam coming up against one of the biggest controversies in Christianity, the, the nature of Jesus and what is the nature of God's word here. Okay. Uh, anyway, so we're not going to rehash all those, all the, the controversies and how that works out, but basically this is like a friction point where we have two, two of the hottest controversies on both sides banging into each other. Okay, now whether John is doing this because he knows this is a controversy and he's saying, aha, you know, hit them, hit them in their weak point, hit them in their Achilles heel, or he just happened to notice the same problem that many other Muslim thinkers would notice, we don't know. But he, he does hit on something that's difficult. And again, uh, in his writing, uh, they're just absolutely not, not able to to answer this. They're just completely dumbfounded. You know what, well, John, you got us, man. Uh, of course, there is an explanation for this. Now, he may or may not have had access to it. He may or may not have heard this. Um, but it, as you know, by the time we get to the point where the Mutazilites and Asherites are writing, um, I mean, they have pr pretty much dealt with this issue uh, extensively. And uh, specifically, the answer here is that any time uh, we have a possessive construction like this. This is called an idafa in Arabic, and it has special grammatical rules. Uh, by the way, just a diversion here. I mean, if you're learning Arabic at all, uh, the idafa is one of the most important concepts you need to learn, and it's one that most students do not adequately learn. So as my students have heard ad nauseum, please make sure you learn the idafa. But anyway... As it applies to this particular issue, anytime we have a possessive like this, when we say God's anything, God's hand, God's house, it means, and this, this is the, um, the, the theological interpretation, it means that the second term, thing that comes after, uh, okay, in, um, in, in Arabic it would be the first term, but understanding in English it's the second term. It means that that thing is created by God and is honorable in his sight. And so when we refer to um, Jesus as being created by God's word, kalimat Allah, that is no problem. That is not creating any contradiction with anything else. It's just like if we say uh, God's will. It is something that is created by God and is, um, is good in his sight, like God's blessings and so forth, okay? So this, doesn't, this would not be an issue uh, for a Muslim theologian uh, in the writings of John of Damascus. It's an absolute killer. Okay, um, and just by the way, 
you know, uh, John John is selective. The same verse, it's um, uh, Surah 4, 171, that um, John is quoting. He doesn't quote the whole thing because the rest of it goes on to specifically call the idea of the Trinity a blasphemy. Okay, now... Here, in fairness, we have to say, okay, why why is John, um, you know, sort of uh, missing some obvious things here? Uh, so we don't really know how how well developed uh, Islamic theology was in in his area at the time, and how much he would have heard of it. But one of the most prominent recent scholars to write on this issue, uh, Daniel Yanisik, and in all fairness, uh, full disclosure, it should be noted he uh, teaches Islamic studies at an evangelical Christian seminary. Uh, however, um, he claims that Islamic doctrine was still in the stages of being formed at this time. Okay, we know that the Mu'tazilite controversies uh, were were still a bit in the future, so this does make sense. Orthodox Christianity had just come through this whole process of sorting out all the different theologies and coming up with a final orthodox version. And so his interpretation is that, you know, the the version of Islam that John is attacking here, which really seems like a straw man, could be a version that was still in flux at the time, and this may be what he encountered, right? Because even if really smart folks were coming up with answers to this, you know, the average person on the street that he may have talked to, you know, probably didn't know these these things any better than, you know, the, the average person uh, knows the theology of their religion in any religion. get to what is the longest part of John's text, uh, and this is the part that's really attacked uh, by his critics, which is uh, pretty easy to do, uh, but for some reason he, he spends a, a very long part of his text talking about, quote, the book of the camel of God. Now, if you've never heard of the book of the camel of God, that's not unusual because it doesn't exist. And so what John's referring to is he calls the things the book of so-and-so is the way he refers to surahs of the Quran. So like he says, the book of the women, that's surah an-nisa, uh, the book of the cow, that's surah al-baqarah, and so forth. Talking about the book of the camel of God, um, there, there is no such book in the Quran. Okay, and a lot of critics point this out and just stop there. I mean, look, this guy, he's, he's attacking a book that doesn't even exist. Now, in fairness, however, the story of the camel of God does pop up in the Quran, but it, it is in several places throughout the Quran. It's not one uh, straight book. Okay, so 
Let's stop for a moment here, and we're going to quote John in his entirety because his, his point is really he wants this story to sound ridiculous, right? He said that there's ridiculous things in this book, and he wants it to sound really, he's writing it in a way so that it sounds ridiculous, okay? So this is what he says, quote, his, here's his version of the story, quote, A camel from God that drank up a whole river and then could not pass between two mountains for lack of room. The camel and the people of the place were to have drunk the water of the river on alternate days. However, after the camel had drunk up the water, the camel fed the people with milk instead. Some evil men killed the camel. Now the camel had a foal, and when the mother was killed, the little camel cried to God, and God took her up to himself. End quote. Okay. Now, what, what is he actually talking about? Where does this come from? Um, what this is actually referring to and what does appear in the Quran is the story of the prophet Salah. Uh, the prophet Salah appears in several points in the Quran, and he is one of the line of Muslim prophets, but he's one of the few in that line who is not mentioned in the Bible. Okay, Salah is said to be from the people of Thamud, uh, who appear several times in the Bible, um, in the Quran as well. Nowadays, these are thought to be the Nabataeans. Okay, the Nabataeans were the people uh, who lived in the desert north of Mecca. Their most famous settlement, of course, is Petra in Jordan, uh, which is carved into the rock. Uh, one of their settlements is in Saudi Arabia. It's called Medinat Salah, which appropriately is the city of Salah. And if you've ever seen pictures of it, it's like Petra in the sense that it's like, like a front of a building carved into a rock. But this one is like a giant boulder sitting out on the desert by itself. Uh, and you may have seen pictures of this because this is um, a place that the current Saudi government is trying to turn into a tourist site. Uh, up until recently, there was no tourism allowed in Saudi Arabia. It's now something they're trying to encourage, and this is one of the places uh, that's being encouraged. It's kind of like Petra, I mean, a, a smaller Petra. So it's probably the same people. Okay. Now, archaeologists believe this place was inhabited about 100 AD, which would explain why Salah is not referenced in the Bible. Okay, anyway, the story of Salah... Uh, says that Salah, he, he's from these people, uh, and he was called to call the people to follow God, and they demanded a sign. And so what God did is he sent a she-camel. Uh, now, in one ayah of the Quran, this camel is said to have miraculously come from a rock. Uh, but anyway, it appears miraculously. And the people and the camel were supposed to alternate drinking from the river uh, as, as, um, as John claims, and that the camel would provide them with milk. And so this is, uh, John makes it sound like this was not supposed to happen, but that it, it was. However, the people of Thamud rebelled and killed the camel. God destroyed the entire city with an earthquake, which would fit with what we see in the ruins of Medinat Salah. Okay, that, that may be why that's there, because, I mean, the place, boom, it's just this big piece of rock sitting out in the middle of nowhere, um, this would, wouldn't, you know, fit with why it's like that. Okay. 
all the rest of the stuff that John mentions, which is really the the hard to believe stuff, is not found in the Quran. However, it it is it may be found in folk tradition. So it's not that he necessarily made all this stuff up by himself. It may have been that people said this, uh, but the the Quran definitely does not say that um, the the camel drank so much water that it couldn't pass between two mountains. Okay, now why does he point this out? First, I mean, he wants it to sound silly, Um, but he's using it to expose contradictions in Muslim theology. And again, he wants to go back to the things that Islam is criticizing about Christianity. And so the big point that he Um, focuses on, and this is the part that's not in the Quran for sure, is talking about the foal, the baby camel. Boom. After they kill the camel. Now, the Quran does say they kill the camel, uh, and God punishes them. But he says, the camel had a foal. When the mother was killed, the little camel, the foal, cried to God, and God took the camel up to himself. Okay. First, he says, how this foal could be born without a father. Okay, and again, he's trying to attack um, the, the Muslim explanation of Jesus, and he wants this to sound like the virgin birth. Now, as we said, uh, Islam does not have a problem with the virgin birth of Christianity. John may not have known that. Um, he may have just seen their rejection of Jesus and calling Jesus a normal man. May He may have assumed that they rejected the virgin birth. So, oh, you say there's no virgin birth of Christ, but you think a foal can be, you know, miraculously born. Um, so it's, it's not even a valid criticism in that way. Uh, but, I mean, if, if, if the camel could appear out of nowhere from a rock, so could a baby camel. Uh, anyway, he's trying to trip him up on that. But then he goes even further, and he says, okay, now... Um, now you've got the, the baby camel up in heaven, and he says the problem is that there are three rivers in heaven. Now, of course, in Islam, there are supposed to be four rivers in heaven. Uh, John doesn't know this. He says there's three. Uh, the four are water, milk, wine, and honey. He, John does not mention the, the river of honey. Okay, now he says the presence of the fall in God, of, of God now in heaven is going to basically ruin these rivers. Why? Because it's going to drink up all the water in the river of water, right? Because supposedly the mother camel drank up a whole river on earth. And therefore, and this is his logic, okay, he says, therefore there's going to be no water in heaven. Now the problem he sees with having no water in heaven may sound a little strange. He says, Therefore, you can't mix water with wine, so everyone will get drunk and sleep through the joys of heaven. And he ends by asking, quote, how did your prophet not think of these questions? End quote. And of course, as always, the Muslims are absolutely stymied. They go away uh, confused. Now, the, the, the point here is, I mean, we don't want to go through and refute this whole thing, but as, as you listen to that logic, I am sure anyone out here listening, whether you're Muslim or not, could refute that story on several points, right? Uh, even, first of all, the Quran doesn't say the camel drank a whole river, but let's suppose it did. Okay, 
drinking a desert stream, which has probably not got much water in it, is different than drinking an eternal divine river in heaven, right? Different things. Secondly, okay, the wine in heaven is said to be... um, it's not intoxicating, which is the whole point, right? In Islam, uh, you're not supposed to drink, you're not supposed to get drunk, and so the idea is that you have this wine, it tastes like wine, but you don't get drunk in heaven. So mixing it with water, I mean, wouldn't make much of a difference anyway, um, you know, right? whether you did or didn't. Okay, so what, what difference does that make? Okay, so this again, this is like, like the general talking about Jesus being in the bathroom and you can't pray to him. It's, it's the way it sounds to someone from the outside, um, not to someone in the inside. Okay, um, but the, the point is it shows the, the degree of understanding between the two populations, whereas he could write something like this, people would read it and say, aha, look at them, look at the crazy things they believe, and, and not even stop to think about it. Okay, well, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? So it's, it's, it's always true that people who have different beliefs than us, different belief systems, we assume that they believe crazy things. Well, I mean, you know, probably they don't believe them in the crazy way we think. Okay, so when it comes to the longest surah in the Quran, that is Surah al-Baqarah, John merely says this, quote, He says many other things, foolish and ridiculous, but there are so many, they may be omitted, there are so many. Quote, now I don't know what the logic is here, right? Okay, so this surah has got so many crazy things in it, I can just say nothing. If it only had a few, you would have to mention them? Anyway, he thinks he's made his case so decisively with the camel, it doesn't need to be followed up. Okay, so he, he talks about marriage, and he specifically mentions the fourth surah again, which he calls the Book of Women. Uh, and he says that this surah allows for marriage to four women at a time, which is true. That is mentioned in Surat An-Nisa. He then cites a whole bunch of other rules about marriage, uh, most of which do not come from that surah, um, but he says they all do. And so, uh, again, it's probable that what he did was he heard that this book was about marriage rules and that the title of it was about the women, and so he assumed that everything about marriage was in there, right? And, and so it's worth noting, of course, if you're familiar with the, the Quran, for the most part, the surahs are not dedicated to a single topic. So Surat al-Baqarah is not all about a cow. Okay, they tend to be named after something that is prominent in there, but they have a lot of different themes. So if we want to get all the rules about marriage, you can't get them all from one surah. Uh, Not even the one that that has a name, which sounds like you might. Uh, This, of course, is very different from the way the Bible is written, particularly the Old Testament, of course, uh, has all these books of laws, and they go, you know, subject by subject. So if you've ever had to read through all the dietary laws um, in the Old Testament, you will you will know what I'm talking about. So it would be reasonable for someone who didn't really know much about the Quran or who only had access to pieces of it uh, to assume that the Surat of Women has all the teachings about women in it. Okay. Anyway, um, most of what he points out, though, about the rules of marriage 
uh, even though some of them are in there, uh, he, he frames it in a way, he has the Prophet Muhammad making up these rules in order basically so he can steal other people's wives away from him, which he does several times, according to John. Okay, So he's, he, even there, he's, he's, um, he's putting some nefarious angle to this and making it sound like the Prophet is making this stuff up on his own. Okay, all right. Now, with all this said, this gives us an idea of of what the the understanding uh, was between um, uh, Muslims and Christians here. What's very interesting is that in John's writing, he does not talk at all about the recent history. Now, this is odd because he's living in what was until very recently a Byzantine province. His family worked for the Byzantine government. The place has just been taken over by an Islamic caliphate, okay? Uh, and he's writing theology, of course, all right? So he's, he's not a history writer, but you think he would mention what's going on around him, right? Especially since it's, it's, it's all very recent. And uh, particularly the Umayyads at this time were trying big time to capture the capital of the Byzantine Empire, Constantinople. I mean, this was... This was the prize that they really wanted. They were never able to get it. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the city that is like the capital of, of his church. And he doesn't, he doesn't talk about that, okay? So, um, you know, and, and this is odd because later Christian writers would always uh, relate what was happening on the ground to, the, to what is uh, prophesied in the Bible. So when they talked about the spread of Islam... Some people would say it's God's punishment for the Christians. Uh, some would say that it's, it's the end times coming, right? This is gearing up for Armageddon and so forth. Or, you know, this is, uh, this is a threat to Christianity as prophesied uh, in, in Revelations and so forth. He's not really doing this. Um, and th I mean, there's no talk about this. The only thing he has is that one mention that I read earlier uh, when he says this is a precursor to the Antichrist. No elaboration on that, um, what he means by that. Okay. Um, so that, that's fairly interesting. Okay. Um, instead, uh, what he's doing is uh, he's portraying Muhammad as someone who has tricked the people. Right? And he's listing Islam in with a bunch of other groups who have made doctrinal errors and deviated, uh, in his mind, to, to such an extent that they are no longer able uh, to be Christians. So he's not portraying the entire group of people the way it would be later, particularly when the Turks come along. Um, and you know there would be this idea of the Turks being the scourge of God and, and, and so forth. Uh, he, he's not really doing that. He's more like trying to uh, portray them as people who have been deceived, which is the way you, you dealt with uh, victims of a heresy. You know, people who were Aryan, you would say, okay, you know, look, you're, you're practicing the wrong kind of Christianity. Your leaders need to be punished, but you, you know, you need to convert to the, um, the correct way of thinking. So he is still, even though Islam is, is conquering huge amounts of territory from the empire that he comes from, um, he's, he's seeing them as 
really people who have gone off the rails, who have gone off on a deviation, uh, being tricked by what he sees as this deceiver. Okay, so that is our brief look at uh, St. John of Damascus. And again, this is someone who not only was considered an expert in his time, is still to this day uh, considered an expert. So if, if you want, go to particularly to Orthodox Christian uh, writings on Islam, and you will likely see John of Damascus quoted as you know a subject matter expert, a guy who really knows what he's talking about even today in the 21st century. So it gives us some idea. Although John is an Orthodox Christian, uh, he will be taken up by the Roman Catholics. They will agree that, yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about, and so his writings um, become uh, theology for the Roman Catholics as well. Now, of course, as we know history, uh, this, this isn't really going to get ironed out. It's not like the next generation comes and says, okay, you know, yeah, John was a little bit off. Uh, let's fix things up, right? It's going to get worse. It's going to get bloody. It's going to get violent. But we kind of get the idea of what's happening, right? What happens to heretics um, throughout Europe? They were, you know, either forced to renounce their heresy or they were exterminated. Arians were exterminated, Huguenots and so forth, all these different heresies. Well, if this is the dominant opinion, they're looking at Islam as a heresy, well, they're going to treat it the same way, only it's going to be the biggest empire in the world with the biggest army, so what do you do? And so this is going to lead to conflict in the future. But anyway, this is our early, uh, early encounters between Islam and Christianity, uh, the story of St. John of Damascus. Uh, we thank you for your kind attention. Uh, we hope that uh, you will stay with us in the future, and we look forward to hearing from you. So shukran jazeelan wa ma salama.